the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday edition of the program. Friday means we're at the end of another week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and questions about whatever's going on in your life. And all I need is for you to call us. It's 210-340-9585. That's 340 340- 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and everything else is hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, because it's a weekend, I really want everybody to be ready to go to church this weekend. Have a great time. Be a source of of encouragement to others. Um, Maybe say, Lord, how about you setting up some divine appointments? You know who needs to be encouraged or you know who needs to be prayed for. And then just sort of figuratively raise your hand and say, Lord, I'm your man or I'm your woman. And God will use you, I promise. I'm going to be doing a Christmas message. I think probably everybody's going to be doing a Christmas message um, this weekend. But this is our Christmas celebration Sunday. Uh, Tonight, we have a special event going on here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Rather than me teaching, um, Pastor Samuel Vargas, who uh, spent many, many years, got saved here as a teenager in our church, Spent a lot of years here serving so faithfully. Uh, called to be a pastor. We sent him to Anchorage, Alaska to plant a church. And he and his wife and kids are back visiting. So I said, I'll put you to work. So Samuel is going to be teaching tonight here at 7 o'clock. And I promise you, you will be blessed. You know, the funny thing, everybody goes to Alaska and they grow a beard. So we got a beard now coming back. Uh, it's cold there. But they're doing a great job and a really, really tough place to minister and uh, I know that if you watch at calvarysa.com or if you come and join us, we usually have room on Friday nights, uh, you will be blessed. I can promise you that. Well, let's get to some questions while we await your phone calls to end the week. Uh, the first question, in fact, the first two questions I have sent in are anonymous questions. Uh, this one says, I prayed for my mom to get saved, but how can I know for sure she's in heaven? Um, Anonymous, you can't know for sure. Evidently, there's some question about whether or not your mom was a believer. Uh, You hope she was. That's all you can do. Here's what we know. Your mom had every opportunity to come to Jesus. And if she did, she's in heaven now rejoicing in his presence. If she didn't, um, Jesus did everything he could to get her. And we know we've got to be okay with that. We've got to trust in the justice and the fairness, the goodness of God. Now, Anonymous, I don't know if I mentioned this on the program yesterday, but Paula told me that yesterday was the 31st anniversary of my mom's death. 
And I hope and I pray that she's in heaven, but I don't know for sure. So I get you. I understand this. And I would love to be able to say, oh, you know, my mom was such a good person. I know she's there. But, but I also know that only born-again Christians are going to be there. And I personally, and this was just before I got saved, this was, I think, the one event that God really used in my life to start the, 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 the ball rolling uh, to my destruction where, where I finally gave my heart to Jesus. Um, but, but I don't know. So I feel your pain. I really do. But um, we don't know. And this is just one of those times when we have to rest in the goodness, the fairness, and the justice of God. You know, we have a problem, typically, when it comes to people in our own families or people that we care so deeply about. We think about them not being in heaven. And we just wonder, well, God, he or she was a good person, and I want them in heaven so badly, but, but we can't ever let our personal emotions cheapen our gospel. We have the most wonderful news in the history of the world. And we have to continue to tell people, but the choice is theirs individually to make, and we can't make it for them as much as we would like to. Uh, I never got a chance because I was not a believer when my mom died. I never got the chance to share uh, Jesus with her. My sister, who is a believer, did. Uh, my sister actually told me once that, that mom um, gave her life to Jesus, um, and, and I had great hope for that once I got saved. The problem with that was is in the subsequent years, everybody in our family who's ever died, my sister said, oh yeah, they were a Christian, they're in heaven, and she just had a hard time dealing emotionally with the fact that maybe they're not. So I don't really know, and neither can you. So just hope. Be sure that you're busy sharing Jesus with others so that they don't miss out in the end. Thank you for the question. I am sorry I can't give you more encouragement than that. The other anonymous question, going from one end of the spectrum to the other, this one says, Pastor Ron, how much freedom do married Christians have in the bedroom? Can we do anything? Um, no, we can't do anything. Of course, we have a lot of freedom, and sex is to be enjoyed, anonymous. Uh, God intended for it to be fun. You know, I think about the animal kingdom, and, you know, they, they have sex to procreate. I mean, it's just part of the cycle of life. Not so with God's greatest creation, humans. Not only do we have sex to procreate, but God gave us this wonderful gift of sex to enjoy. There doesn't have to be any ulterior motive. He just said, enjoy yourself. This is my gift to you, and it's a wonderful gift. And pretty much Christians have complete freedom in the bedroom. The only thing that I can see is completely forbidden in our Bibles is the act of sodomy. Can't do that, but I think pretty much anything and everything else that, that both people consent to and are enjoying, we need to remember. Now, people get creeped out when I say this, so I, I don't mean that that's not my intent here. But, but when a husband and wife are having sex, Jesus is there. I mean, it's a holy experience. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And pretty much anything and everything that, that's um, okay with the Lord is, is going to be blessed. So have fun. The bedroom, the marriage bed is to be fun. It's to be passionate. It's to be exciting. You can read the Song of Solomon and the sex act is described in magnificent poetic detail over and over and over. And, and uh, you can see an awful lot of freedom in that book of poetry. So, Anonymous, you've got plenty of freedom. Enjoy yourself. Um, don't let anybody make you feel guilty. You know, as a pastor, you do a lot of pre-marriage counseling, and one of the things that is consistent, especially for uh, young women who have been raised in the church and raised, uh, sadly, um, in an atmosphere of, of, well, you know, sex is just something we do to have children. It's not something you should enjoy. And they make you feel guilty about it. And when we, uh, it, it's always the, the very last pre-marriage counseling session that we do uh, before the wedding, um, when I let them know that, no, sex is supposed to be fun. 
be excited, be playful, be passionate. And you can almost see the, the, the burdens being lifted uh, from the shoulders of the people that we're talking about. So uh, enjoy the freedom that God has given you. Enjoy the gift that he's given you. And um, um, he'll be there with you. And that's a good thing and not a creepy thing at all. So Anonymous, I hope that makes sense to you. Um, I'm grateful to God for the gift of our sexuality that he's given us. I said I had two anonymous questions. I have three. Um, what counsel do you have for a lesbian who believes in Jesus but who struggles with her sexuality? Um, you know, as long as... I don't know if you're talking about you or somebody else, anonymous, but as long as... I'm going to assume it's you, and then we'll, we'll, you can adjust sort of on the, on the fly here. Um, as long as you're struggling... I think that's a good thing. Struggling rather than giving in to your sexual impulse is a gift that God gives you. We struggle because we have to make a choice. Do I satisfy my flesh or do I satisfy Jesus? And I think the struggle is good. So it's really important you understand that. I also think it would be helpful, and I'm not being in denial here, so please don't misunderstand I think it would be helpful if you wouldn't identify yourself as a lesbian. You, you can, and, and I know this is a fine line, but you can say, well, well, my sexual attraction is for other women, but I'm a new creation in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. And then when you are tempted sexually, all you have to do is um, uh, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. And it really is as simple as this. There's a decision between you giving in to temptation and pleasing the Lord. It really is that simple a choice. And whether you were attracted to same-sex uh, people or you were, had heterosexual attraction, if you're not married then the believer in Christ has to say no to sex so that we can say yes to Jesus. I know how difficult it is. I know how unfair it sometimes seems, and certainly how unfair it's made out to be in the world that we live in. But Jesus says, I'm enough. My grace is sufficient for you. And, and pleasing Jesus will be the, the most satisfying thing that you will ever do. If you satisfy the flesh, no matter what that sin is, we always have to deal with the consequences, and that's when the enemy struggles. Let me recommend a book for you, Anonymous. There is a book by Jackie Hill Perry called Gay Girl, Good God. Gay Girl, Good God. Jackie Hill Perry is a young black woman who um, grew up identifying as lesbian, uh, she was the, um, uh, she's black, so she was, she calls herself a stud. She took on the male role in her relationships. Um, and then she got saved. And she still struggled with who she was and the sexual temptation. But she fell in love with Jesus, and her whole sort of journey is um, laid out before us in that book. And I would recommend it highly. Uh, if you want a, a quicker uh, reference, she is all over YouTube. Jackie Hill Perry, Hill Dash Perry. Um, that's her name. She's now married, uh, has two children. Um, same sex attraction doesn't just go away, but in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, then you have the opportunity to learn how to deal with your temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that, that no temptation has seized you except that which is common to others. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he'll provide a way out so that you can stand up under the temptation. All of that to say, Anonymous, you don't have to give in. You can say no. And I think if you frame it as a, well, I used to be this, but now... I'm a Christian. Paul said, writing to the Romans, he said, he finds this law at work. When I sin, it's not me who sins, but sin living in me. 
And he identifies that struggle between spirit and flesh that even the great Apostle Paul had. So Anonymous keeps struggling with it, but remember that you've got the power that raised Christ from the dead living in you. And I think it will be the most satisfying thing that you've ever done. I wish I could tell people that, uh, and, and sadly, tragically, in fact, evangelicals have tried this in the past to our shame. Uh, well, let's just con- have conversion therapy, pray the gay away type of thing. It doesn't work that way. We live in a fallen world. Our flesh is corrupted. And this may be a struggle that you have for a very, very long time. What I can promise you is that when you overcome in this struggle, let me bring that even closer home, every time you overcome in this struggle, you will experience the pleasure of God in your life. And that will give you the strength to say no to you and yes to God again and again and again. So I hope that answers your question and um, keep struggling. Don't give in. Don't listen to the world. Just let the Spirit of God speak to your heart. 340-9585 Daryl asks the question, why did God give Hezekiah an extra 15 years when God already said that his illness would end in death? You know, Daryl, this is one of the things that we're not given an an explanation for. Uh, Hezekiah uh, had no heir. Hezekiah was a good king. Uh, for the most part, Hezekiah was a good king. And at the end of his life, he was sick, and um, he wanted to know, is this illness going to end in death? And uh, Isaiah the prophet came to him and, and said, yes, it's going to end in death. And and it was. But, but Hezekiah poured out his heart before the Lord. God had mercy, which means sometimes God answers prayers. And he gave him an extra 15 years. Now, in that 15 years, he had a son. And again, this is one of those stories that I wish there was a, a long, detailed explanation because his son, Manasseh, was the worst king in the history of Judah. Had a good father. Father followed the Lord. Did what was right in the eyes of God. Was raised in that environment. In fact, Hezekiah could have looked at him and so many times said, you know, you, you, you should never have been born. I was going to die and God rescued me. I mean, what a great opportunity for a father to encourage a son. And yet when Hezekiah died and Manasseh took over, he was a complete mess. An absolute mess. And uh, caused more pain to God's people than many of the enemies of God's people caused. So I don't know why. I've learned, Daryl, not to, not to ask why questions, um, not to try to superimpose my thoughts or opinions on those, just to report them as the Bible gives them to us. I can tell you this, that Manasseh, at the end of his life, repented and turned back to God was accepted by God, and we're going to see Manasseh in heaven. He's going to be, we just had a study on Sundays, he's going to be in the smoking section of heaven, but he made it. So uh, why did God do it? I don't know. God answers prayer sometimes, and he did in this time. There are other times when he didn't. And Esau sought the blessing with tears, the blessing he sold for a bowl of stew. God knew he wasn't serious. Well, all I can tell you is that Hezekiah really wanted to honor God with his own descendant on the throne. And for whatever God's reasons were, God said yes. Good question. I love the historical books. Harry says, I get this question a lot. Can you be a Christian without going to church? Um, Yeah. Harry, you can be. But if you were a professing Christian and you had no interest in going to church, I would ask you, what makes you think you're a Christian? You see, we are the church. Paul says, writing to the Corinthians, a study I did last Sunday, 
that you, don't you know that you are God's temple and the Spirit of God lives in you? And he was speaking specifically to the church. Now later, he's going to also say that same thing with regard to individual believers. But this is where Jesus meets us, church. This is the body that he's created for us to be a blessing to and a place to get blessed as well. This is where we use the gifts. This is something that we become. There's, there's a, a sense that we all have instinctively. We want to be a part of something bigger than us. And we know when we get saved and we're part of this body, the church universal. But then God says, but, but I want you to come to a local church. And if you go through the New Testament, the local church is the, where, is the place that God uses his Christians. It's where he equips them, prepares them, and leads them and guides them to do his will. But the Christian who doesn't go to church, and I'm talking about the professing Christian, only you and God knows your heart, but if you don't want to go to church, that's like saying, well, God, I don't want to be in your will. Well, basis for a relationship is that. And so, yeah, I guess you can be a Christian without going to church. But usually, those are very unproductive, unfruitful Christian lives. You had somebody tell me one time, Harry, well, I, I don't, I like Jesus, but I don't like organized religion. Well, Jesus doesn't like organized religion either. The church is organic. The church is thriving. And we're a part of something that's alive. And when you are led by God to a church, then you get involved in the flow of his perfect will in your lives. And, and if you're not interested in being in the will of God, again, I would ask you, what makes you think you're a Christian? So that's really, really an important thing for you to consider. I can't imagine why people don't want to go to church. People say, well, I've been hurt in church before. Or, People judge me when I'm there. Well, then get right with God. It's not about what people do. It's about you and your heart before the Lord. And for the person who is not interested in church, but they say they love Jesus, and I've said this before, and it's I think I say it because I want people to get the, the, the seriousness of this question. I say it's like saying to Jesus, Jesus, I love you, but your wife is ugly. We're the bride of Christ. And I just don't think that's going to go over very well when we get to heaven. So, Harry, you need to be in church. And if you don't want to go to church, repent and do it out of obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Um I've got a question that Jennifer just said. I'm going to keep that for the break so I don't have to go uh, go over it real quickly. I'll get Jennifer. Thank you for calling. I'll, I'll get that the first thing after the break. Here's a question I think I can do in the last three minutes. Amos says, what is your opinion on young churches trying to reach only other young people? Churches like Elevation Church and others. Um, Amos, I had a question that was similar to this, I think, last week. Um, uh, I'm not a fan. I, I think what we do as as pastors uh, and church leaders is we do what God has told us to do. We open our Bible. Uh, we teach it. And then we let the Holy Spirit bring whoever he's going to bring. And I think a church that is appealing only to young people, a young pastor appealing to young people, I got news for them. They're all going to get old. And it's going to happen quickly. Calvary Chapel, as you may know, Amos, started in the Jesus uh, movement of the, of the late 60s and early 70s. Um, if you were five years ago, six years ago at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, where it all started, you'd look around and you'd see a whole bunch of gray hairs. And the reason is those are the people that got saved when they were young. Now those gray hairs are there and available to minister to all the young people that the Holy Spirit keeps bringing in. 
And so I don't think it's our responsibility uh, to, to, to determine who our audience is. We open the Bible. We want to touch every heart. Um, we, we want to meet people where they are. That's the, the heart of the Holy Spirit. And so we just minister to everybody. Jesus loves old people. Jesus loves young people. You know, I, I wrestled a little while ago, and then a few years ago with, well, you know, I'm getting old. How much longer are people going to want to listen to me? And the Lord kind of rebuked me and said, as long as I keep bringing them, you just do your job. And I think that's a really important message for all of us to remember. So I'm not, Elevation Church, I'm not a fan at all. I've listened to the nonsense, uh, and it's just, it's just horrible. Uh, the people young, they're hip, they dress hip. I, I get all that. But I would question whether or not they're doing the work that God wants them to do. So Amos, you just find the church that God's led you to, the church where you're going to be fed, the church where God can use your gifts to minister to others, and be a part of that, a contributing part of that church, and you will be both blessed and a blessing. We have 30 minutes left in the week. We'd love your live calls and questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Friday show. That was like the fastest two minutes in the history of the world right there. Here's a question from Jennifer. Jennifer, I don't see well, so I had to be able to focus a little bit to uh, to see your question. So uh, thank you for being patient with me. Jennifer says, I grew up hearing that when bad things happen, it's God's fault. But I once heard a pastor say that there are a lot of powers that be, but for some reason we blame it all on God. Is it blasphemous to think that way? Um, Jennifer, it's not blasphemous to think that way, but it really is ungrateful to think that way. Um we humans, we want explanations for things. It makes sense to us. If I do good, then good things will happen. If I do bad, then bad things will happen. Um, and, and, but, but life's not that cut and dry. Uh, bad things happen in this world because we live in a fallen world. The fallen world is the fault of mankind. We continue to rebel against God, and that means more bad things continue to happen. Nothing bad is God's fault. It can't be God's fault because God is nothing but good. Now, we wonder sometimes why God allows bad things to happen or why God doesn't protect us from bad things happening. Uh, I think when we get to heaven, Jennifer, we're going to find out that God has protected us from more things than we could possibly imagine, things that we weren't even aware of. But he also, because we live in this fallen world, Bad things happen to everybody, saved and unsaved alike. None of it is God's fault. Now, the pastor that you heard say, well, there are a lot of powers that be. Um, you know, I think we blame too much stuff on the devil. The truth is, it's just us. We like to sin. We are in rebellion against God. We do what we want to do instead of doing what God wants us to do. And bad things are going to happen. And again, I want to repeat this for emphasis. None of it is God's fault. The world, the, 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 the universe, the, the earth that we live in is in rebellion or, or at least has is, is been taken captive in our rebellion. And, and uh, Paul says that the earth is groaning, moaning, awaiting its redemption. So a time is coming, Jennifer, when bad stuff is going to stop happening. But that's when Jesus is going to come for us. And then seven years later, he's going to come and return. We're going to be with him. And he's going to take control of this world again. And he will rule and reign with perfect justice. But bad things happen to everybody, saved 
and unsaved alike, just like good things happen to everybody saved and unsaved. So I don't think it's blasphemy. I think it's horrible teaching uh, that you grew up listening to. But I really believe with all of my heart that it is a lack of gratitude. What did Job say when his wife told him to curse God and die? I mean, Job lost his whole family. Now, we're hard on Mrs. Job, but I want you to think for a moment. She just lost all of her children. They lost everything they had. Her husband now is covered in boils and in more pain than we can begin to imagine. And this heartbroken woman just said, curse God and die. Job said, shall we receive only good? And not the bad. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think when bad things happen, that's sort of the uh, approach that we have to have. You know, Jennifer, and I'm going to take another minute with this because I think it's important. I, 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 I watch Christians, I'm talking about real Christians, who get angry with God because something happens to somebody they love or something happens to them. They get a bad medical report or they're in an accident or some such thing. And, and I always ask, again, not in a, in a harsh or angry way, but I want people to think. For instance, if somebody got a bad medical report, you've got cancer. I ask them, were you this angry when somebody that you didn't know got cancer? You were in an accident. Were you this angry when somebody that you don't know was in an accident, somebody you just saw on the news? I think we who belong to God, we've got to express our gratitude. And the way we express our gratitude is simply to, to understand that God is good. He is only good and he is completely good. And nothing is his fault. And when we grow up thinking or when we hear bad teaching that says God owes it to us to solve our problems or we deserve not to have bad things happening, I, I think we forget both who we are and who God is. So Jennifer, thank you for the question, and I hope that helps you understand a little bit. Bad things are going to happen. That's just the way it is. Here is an email question from Nacho. He asks, after Paul and Silas had been beaten and falsely imprisoned in Philippi in Acts 16, and the magistrate orders their release the next day, why was Paul so adamant in being apologized to by one of the magistrates in person it seems so different for Paul to be so prideful, for lack of a better term in parentheses, an almost in-your-face reaction. I'm sure there's more than meets the reading eye, but what can it be? Well, I'm not sure you're right. There's a lot more than, than meets the eye. Um, and, and Paul, believe me, was not being in anybody's face. Paul was simply saying there's unfinished work to be done in Philippi. I'm going back. Uh, they beat me. Uh, and, and this would be, he would do this also in, in Lystra, uh, in, in coming from Derby. Um, it, it was just an opportunity. I'm going to go back. I'm going to face the people that tried to kill me. I'm not afraid of them. And it would be opportunities for Paul to, to share his testimony. It would be Paul, uh, opportunities for Paul to declare the gospel all over again. And he would have them in a position that was for them a disadvantage. And they pretty much had to let Paul do whatever he wanted to do. And for Paul, that always meant proclaiming the gospel. So make no mistake, there would be a lot of prayer uh, over these decisions. Uh, when, when he was stoned in Lystra, nobody wanted to go back there. No, let's just get away. No, because he knew as a Roman citizen what the punishment was. So he could get in and pretty much turn that advantage into an opportunity to proclaim Jesus Christ. So he wasn't in their face. Uh, there was no pride at all. This was courage. This was resolve. And Paul walked right back in to the place of danger. Um, and I love that about him. I really love that about him. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Jay, also from our email inbox. Um, what is your opinion or comments on Raphael Warnock, who is running for a Senate seat in Georgia, in a statement in a sermon when he says, America, nobody can serve God and the military. You can't serve God and money. 
You cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. America, choose this day who you will serve. Choose ye this day. Is there such a statement or command in the Bible? I served in the military along with many Christian brothers. Um, Jay, I, I don't know who this Raphael Warnock is, and I don't know uh, what he said, uh, but if that quote is accurate, uh, as you reported it to me, uh, of course you can serve God in the military. God has people everywhere. And uh, some of our best people have come out of the military. And, um, um, you know, God's always had his people in the military. So I don't know who this guy is. I don't know what his um, agenda is. I don't know whether he's Republican or Democrat. I imagine he's on the Democrat side of the, the, the anti-war uh, America is evil and everybody else's good side uh, and 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 he's trying to get radical to win the seat uh, because it's such a contested two seats in fact uh, in Georgia uh, and he's the more radical they get the more people that that will line up with him but it's nonsense um, the Bible does say you can't serve God and money you got to decide where your priority is that's for true uh, but um, um, military has nothing to do with um, money. Um, the people I know that went to the military, I don't know anybody that came out of the military rich. My producer is sitting there smiling because he came out of the Marines, uh, retired from the Marines, and uh, I can I can vouch for him. He's not rich. He's rich with God, but he's not rich there. So uh, I, I wouldn't worry about it. No, I, I've not heard it. I haven't read anything about it, but I can say it's nonsense. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. And phones have been quiet, so we'd love to have you call. Um, Anonymous says, I have friends who are not believers, and of course they sin. I don't want to lose them as friends for my life, so I need to know if it's okay to hang out with them. You know, Anonymous, if you hang out with them and honor God, they're not going to want you to hang out with them. So that's the thing you got to understand. Uh, you don't have to lose them as friends, but if they're really your friends, if you really care about these people, you need to tell them about Jesus. How would you ever explain to one of your friends on their way to hell that, well, you knew about Jesus, but you didn't want to tell him because you wanted... And he would say, well, a friend would have told me the truth. Now, you may lose them temporarily as friends, but that's their choice, not yours. The other thing that I'd have to tell you is that if you hang out with them while they're sinning, you're going to get dragged into their sin, and that is not okay. That is not okay. So as a believer, you got to decide who your loyalty lies with. Is it with your old friends, or is it with Jesus? It should be an easy choice for you, but the choice you make will determine whether or not you're a real believer or not. Would you rather hang out with Jesus or hang out with your old buddies? That really is the, the crux of the matter for you. Here is a question from Anna. She says, my question is about Romans 13, 7 and 8. I want to know if being in debt is a sin. Let me read the passage uh, Anna and then I'll answer your question. Uh, Paul writes, Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. And by the way, revenue is just another word for, for taxes here. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And then he says this in verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Um, so on a, obviously, debt has been a part of our world from the very, very beginning. So this is not a prohibition against being in financial debt. Um, most of us couldn't buy homes. Uh, most of us couldn't buy cars if we only had to pay cash. Um, so debt is okay. Um, but what this is telling us to do is to pay that, those debts. Uh, sometimes we get, and this happens even with Christians, we get so indebted that some little hiccup comes along, we can't service those debts. That is something that is a sin. We, we need to, to, to follow through and pay our bills. We need to pay the people that we owe. 
And I'll add, we need to pay on time. Now, I understand, so does God. Uh, a time like we're going through now where people are losing their businesses and lots of jobs have gone away. Uh, there's nothing you can do about that. It's not sin if you are a victim of getting caught up in a circumstance like that. But if you are simply piling debt upon debt, credit cards are full, you've got a mortgage, you've got cars, um, you need to reevaluate who really is the Lord of your finances. I know people, Anna, who have had significant calls in their lives, and they knew it. And yet they couldn't say yes to those calls because they were so far in debt, they, they, they had to keep working in order to, to, to keep paying their debts. And they're the ones that are missing out. So it's, it's okay to borrow money. Just be sure that you pay it back and pay it back on time as agreed. And when you do that, then you're in violation of any sin. The only debt, and this is the, the, the contrast in these two verses, the only debt that never gets paid off, a debt that we always owe, is the debt to love one another. It doesn't matter what somebody does to you. It doesn't matter what you've done to them. We still have the obligation to pay the debt of love. If more of us as believers would pay attention to that, we wouldn't be ripping each other apart on Facebook or other social media platforms. We wouldn't be speaking ill of other people. We'd love them because God loves them. We'd love them because we're going to be in heaven with them forever and ever. These are really important things to consider. So if you're in debt, it's okay. Just pay your bills. But I would also say to everybody, prayerfully consider your debt. Ask God, what does he want you to move? Or does he want you to buy a new car? Does he want you to, 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 to overspend on Christmas? Those are the things, the decisions that we need to make. We need to make those decisions prayerfully. So, and I hope that answers your question. Here's another anonymous question. Um, ooh, this is a scary one. Uh, he or she says, what does it mean regarding my salvation if I don't actually feel bad when I sin? Uh, probably means you're not saved. Remember, to be saved, the Holy Spirit has to live in you. I say this half-jokingly, only half-jokingly. The Holy Spirit's first name is Holy. And if you're living an unholy life and you don't feel conviction, I'm not talking about just feeling bad, not, not oh, I blew it again, not just that conviction. i got to stop this. If you don't feel that, Anonymous, I would say you need to really ask the Lord if you really saved at all. If you can sin without feeling bad, without feeling the conviction of the Spirit, if you can sin and plan on doing it the next time. You say, I had a question last week, my conscience doesn't really bother me. That doesn't make it okay. If you can rebel against God and not feel conviction, what in the world would make you think that you belong to Jesus? You answered an altar call, big deal. Lots of people answer altar call. Read Romans, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower. Jesus said that many will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, depart from me, for I never knew you. You were baptized, big deal. There's nothing efficacious about going down the water as it relates to salvation. So outwardly, what we do doesn't matter. What really determines whether or not we're Christians, anonymous, is what happens inwardly in our heart. So don't be foolish enough to think that, well, you know, I got baptized or I go to church or I try to be a good person. Don't let anything like that cause you any difficulty in understanding that who we are is identified by what we do. We're not saved by what we do. But who we are is identified by what we do. I knew I was a Christian. I'd really met Jesus. The Holy Spirit lived in me when I was doing some of the same things that I did before I was saved and suddenly I didn't like doing them anymore. 
They were no fun anymore. Even some of my friends had earlier questions about hanging out with old friends. Even when I was hanging out with some old friends, you know, my old poker games or going to the racetrack, those kind of things, uh, I'd, I'd be there just for a little while. I'm thinking, you know, this is terrible. I used to love doing this. Why is this terrible? Well, it was terrible because Jesus now was with me. And for me to do those things, I was leaving him at home. And hanging out with Jesus is a lot more fun than anything else. So that was the reason. Uh, Dana asks, what does it mean in Deuteronomy 20, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 8, 2, when God said he tests us to know what is in our hearts, doesn't he already know? Um, Dana, God knows everything. Of course we know that. But, but when he says to find out what was in your hearts, um, we need to know what's in our hearts. And a lot of the tests and trials, remember Peter is a perfect example. Uh, God, if all of the others, Jesus, if all of the others desert you, I never will. I'm ready to die with you. And Jesus told him, today you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Um, Peter's tests came to show him what was in his heart, what God knew was in his heart all along. You know, the man or the woman that says, okay, God, I'll serve you, and then we, we serve for two weeks, and then we kind of get fed up with it, and somebody comes along and get aggravated because they're not grateful enough or because um, maybe we, we don't think they spoke to us kindly enough, and we stop serving. God, God says those are the kind of tests that show you what's in your heart. And Dana, I think most of us, we want in our inner man, inner woman, we want to serve God. But the truth is we want to serve him on our terms. And so the tests that come in our lives show us where our heart really is. That's why Paul said that we're to examine ourselves daily to see whether or not we're in the faith. And if we'll do that, the Holy Spirit will show you your heart. And that is a big reason why God tests us. There are some others. God tests our resolve at times. Um, God in preparing us for that which lies ahead is toughening us up a little bit. Some trials that come into our lives are corrective. We're going the wrong way, so we got this trial. We're going to redirect and go the right way. So those are the reasons that we encounter tests, but but primarily, he wants us to know what's in our hearts. And because he already knows, he's the one who's sort of making the tests work out uh, to accomplish his will in our lives. Good question. Um, Randy says, does Jeremiah 10... Oh, I remember this question. You know, I get this question every year. One time, this is my time. Does Jeremiah 10, verses 2 through 4, mean that we cannot have Christmas trees in our home? Let me read it, and then we'll all talk about it. It says, This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the sky, though the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the people are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it will not totter. Um... No, this has nothing to do with Christmas trees. Nothing whatsoever. Jesus wasn't born. This is simply saying, don't be like the other nations. The other nations are terrified of skies. They worship the stars. Um, they have customs that are worthless. They'll cut a tree out of the forest and shape it and, and then worship the image that they've shaped. Um, they adorn it with silver and gold. Um, that has nothing whatsoever to do with Christmas trees, Randy. So if you want a Christmas tree, enjoy having a Christmas tree. Um, it's Christmas. And we take the things that were pagan in origin and we turn them um, to and for the glory of God. Good question. How much time have I got? Okay, three minutes. I'm going to need to do two more questions. Wendy says, my friend tells me Mary was full of grace, which means she never sinned. Is that right? No, Wendy, just the opposite. Uh, full of grace. Grace is, remember, unmerited favor. And all one has to do is read Mary's Magnificat. And what we learn there is that Mary was a sinner. And she recognized that Jesus 
was her savior. Now he would also be her son in his humanity, but but he's her savior. And people that don't sin don't need to be saved. So Mary uh, was given the fullness of grace. But the fact that she was full of grace has nothing to do with her capacity to sin. Now, as you know, uh, your friend is probably Roman Catholic. And there are Roman Catholic traditions which are absolutely worthless, which say that Mary was like Jesus without sin, and some even ascribe to her a position of co-redemptrix. That is heresy. It is um, antithetical to the message of the Bible, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul says, uh, written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Mary was a sinner. I'm sure she was the nicest sinner ever, but still separated from God by her sin. And Jesus, on the cross, remember, he gave her to another. Here is your mother. This is your son. In other words, I'm no longer your son. I'm your savior. So Mary was given the full measure of grace by God in the person of that baby in the womb. That's what we're celebrating. On Sunday here at Calvary Chapel, it's what this season is all about. It's about God loving you so much that he sent his only son. I thought I could do two questions. I can't. I just heard the music come on. So, Wendy, no, Mary was a sinner, and Jesus died for her sins as well. Hey, have a great weekend. Be careful. I understand there's going to be a lot of rain out there tomorrow. So be careful. Get to church. Serve God by serving others. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be back on Monday at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.